I'm sure you have witnessed a child with their fingers tightly wrapped around something. A blanket, a pacifier, that special stuffed animal. Maybe that you've made trips back to grandma's house or to a friend's house to retrieve in order that your child may have peace as they drift off into sleep for the evening. That blankie cannot truly bring full security, can it? A parent can offer so much more. Now don't take the the comparison too far and start ripping blankies and passies away from your kids. We're not going there. But in a sense, those items, that pacifier or blanket or stuffed animal, give a child a false sense of security. In their moment of distress, they are satisfied with something that really cannot help them and keep them safe from flames or keep them safe from a burglar who has entered into a home or fend off germs of the flu or some other virus. However, a child's parents is able to carry them out of a burning building to defend them from a burglar and attempt, at least, to keep germs at arm's length. It's a matter for the child of what they are trusting. That's the ongoing battle for God's children, both back in the Old Testament days and also now in 2019. Who will God's children trust? Who will you place your faith in day by day? Where are you looking for your security as you traverse this journey of life? To whom, to what, do you give your devotion? Mark Burgop, in his book on lament, says it this way. Lament is the language that calls us as exiles to uncurl our fingers from our objects of trust. If you haven't done so yet, would you please locate the book of Lamentations in your copy of the Scriptures? If you're using the Pew Bible, it's page 577. And by the way, if you don't have a copy of the Bible, you can find many copies available online. And if you would like a a paper copy, a book, you're welcome to take the copy that's in front of you in the Pew. We believe that God's Word is the final authority. That's one of the reasons that we give time to explaining God's Word every single Lord's Day. We as God's children need the Word because it shapes how we are called to live in this life. The book of Lamentations is is prophetic in nature. It's it's a book of of prophecy. It records for us the response of, of Judah as the city of Jerusalem falls. But the book also points us towards hope. Each week during this study, I've I've given you this author's thought that lament is the process of living between the poles of a hard life and trusting in God's sovereignty. You can identify the hard life, can't you? You can look at something that's going on right now in your life, a hardship, and you can say, yeah, that's a hardship, and I'm trying to to live in balance with this reality and the sovereignty of God in allowing it, ordaining this to happen in my life. 
You can look back at other times in your life and you can see times of hardship, times of difficulty, times of trial, and you're trying to live within, between the poles of that hardship and the sovereignty of God. And lament is the language, it's, it's the help, it's the means, it's the process of living between those two poles. We've concluded that the reality of darkness in the life of the Christian calls for the practice of lament in the life of the Christian, and that results in the hope of God in the life of a Christian. You have your own place of hardship and darkness. It's discouragement with a certain circumstance in life. Or maybe for you it's the loss of a loved one. Maybe for you it's unexplained darkness. You don't know why you're feeling the darkness. You don't know why you are discouraged. You just are. Maybe it's a besetting sin that's just kind of hounded you all of your Christian life and, and it's, you've become discouraged because it's, it's there and you've given into it over and over and over again. Maybe it's disappointment in some other way. We've also explained that lament is not completely negative. There is a turn that takes place in the process of lament. Lament is not only about sorrowing or grieving. It's also about asking. It's also about trusting in God. And that's what Lamentations 4 is about. It's that, that, that last step of trust. Lament calls us to the actions of going to God, complaining to God, asking of God, and trusting in God. It's composed, the book of Lamentations has five poems, five funeral dirges, really. Chapters 1, 2, 4, and 5 have 22 verses each. They're acrostics, except for chapter 5. Lamentations 1 taught us that that sin and its consequences bring, brings great misery on this, into this life. Lamentations 2 taught us to, to look to the rule of God, that he rules with severity, he rules with justice, and he rules with purpose. Lamentations 3 is, is the great turning point of the book where, where, the, where the poet really packs the meat of the poetry. It's where we find hope in the truth of God, the truth that God's mercies are new, Every single morning. The truth that God's covenant love is there for us, for his children. The truth of God's great faithfulness. And so that brings us to Lamentations 4, which is much like Lamentations 1. Would you please follow along now as I read Lamentations chapter 4, verses 1 through 22. How has the gold become dim? How has the most fine gold changed? The stones of the sanctuary are poured out in the top or in the, the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion, comparable to fine gold or worth their weight in gold. How they are esteemed as earthen pitchers, the work of the hands of the potter. Even the sea monsters, or we could say the jackals, they're beasts, even the, the jackals draw out the, out the breast. They give suck to their young ones. The daughter of my people has become cruel, like ostriches in the wilderness. The tongue of the sucking child cleaveth to the roof, the roof of his mouth for thirst. The young children ask for bread, and no man breaks it or gives it to them. They that did feed delicacies, or delicately, or desolate in the streets. They that were brought up in scarlet 
embrace dunghills. For the punishment of the iniquity of the daughter of my people is greater than the punishment of the sin of Sodom that was overthrown as in a moment, and no hands stayed on her. Her Nazarites, or we could translate that her princes, were purer than snow. They were whiter than milk. They were more ruddy in body than rubies. Their polishing or their appearance was of sapphire. Their visage or their face is is blacker than a coal. They are not known in the streets. Their skin cleaveth to their bones. It is withered. It has become like a stick. They that be slain with the sword are better than they that be slain with hunger. For these pine away, these wasted away, stricken through for once of the the fruits of the field, the hands of the, the pitiful, the compassionate women, have sodden their own children. The hands of, verse 10, the hands of the compassionate women have sodden. They have boiled. They have cooked their own children. They were their food in the destruction of the daughter of my people. The Lord has accomplished his fury. He has poured out his fierce anger and has kindled a fire in Zion. And it has devoured the foundations thereof. The kings of the earth and all the inhabitants of the world would not have believed that the adversary and the enemy could have entered into the gates of Jerusalem. But for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests that have shed the blood of the just in the midst of her. They have wandered as blind men in the streets. They have polluted themselves with blood so that men could not touch their garments. They cried unto them, Depart ye, it is unclean. Depart, depart, touch not. When they fled away and wondered, they said among the heathen, They shall no more sojourn there. The anger of the Lord hath divided them. He will no more regard them. They respected not the persons of the priests. They favored not the elders. As for us, our eyes yet failed for our vain help. In our watching, we have watched for a nation that could not save us. They hunt our steps that we cannot go in our own streets. Our end is near. Our days are fulfilled, for our end is come. Our persecutors are swifter than the eagles of, of the heaven. They pursued us upon the mountains. They laid wait for us in the wilderness. The breath of our nostrils, the anointed of the Lord, was taken in their pits, of whom we said, under his shadow we shall live among the heathen. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, that dwellest in the land of Uz. The cup also pass through unto thee. Thou shalt be drunk, and thou shalt make thyself naked. And then verse 22. The punishment of thine iniquity is accomplished, O daughter of Zion. He will no more carry thee away into captivity. He will visit thine iniquity, O daughter of Edom. He will discover thy sins. This is a hard passage to read, isn't it? It's another very dark description of severe hardship. This is challenging to imagine, especially when we understand that this isn't some kind of ancient mythology. This is factual data. This actually happened. It's historical fact. As you can tell from our reading, the poet of Lamentations was again distraught In chapter 4, as he described the dire situation. 
The situation describes God unleashing his anger against sin. It is severe. And God will unleash his anger against sinners in hell for all of eternity. Hell is a, is a real place where people go after this life. And it's a place where they will face the penalty of, the, of their sinful rebellion against a holy God. My friend, this passage reminds us of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. If you've gathered with us this morning and you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, friend, be sobered by this depiction of God unleashing His anger against the sin of people that He created. God judges sin. And that judgment is severe. And that judgment for, who, for, for any who do not call on Jesus means an eternity in hell. I invite you today, if you've not been born again, if you've not placed your faith in Jesus, to do so even today, even right now. For believers, it is through this dire situation described in Lamentations 4 that we can identify ways in which we and which the people of Judah misplaced their trust. The Bible calls it idolatry. It's the call for Christians from this passage. Times of trial give you opportunity to identify your misplaced trust. And conversely, times of trial give you opportunity to renew your trust in the only one who is exclusively and completely trustworthy. Somebody put it this way. Lament is a language that calls us to, it, as exiles to uncurl our fingers from the objects of trust. So as we endure hardship in this life, as we go to God, as we complain to God, as we ask of God to reveal what we, we, we ask of Him to reveal what we are trusting, who we are trusting instead of Him. So ask God to do that for you today as we consider His Word throughout the rest of this day, throughout the rest of this season. Regularly ask God to reveal to you what you are trusting, who are you trusting in His place. Now there's a difference between what causes the trial that we face and what the trial reveals as we face that trial. In other words, you may be going through a really difficult time right now. You may be facing darkness, hardship, trial. And that doesn't mean that you're facing that as a result of your misplaced trust. You may be asking God to help you trust Him. You may be, be, be drawing nigh to Him and doing your very best to trust Him. Just because you're going through a trial doesn't mean that that trial happens because of your lack of trust in God. However, as you go through a trial, it gives you opportunity to ask God, God, reveal to me what I am trusting in. Trials give us an opportunity to test our trust. Are we trusting in something other than Jehovah God? We need to acknowledge that we each do this from time to time. We misplace our trust. Now, it can be in, in additional ways than what we will observe from Lamentations 4, but it doesn't change the fact that our hearts are regularly encouraging us to trust someone or something other than Jehovah God. Maybe for you it's your position at the workplace that you just have to have. That's a marital status. It's a health need. It's this or it's that. Our hearts are factories of idols. We work overtime seeking satisfaction in all the wrong places. And the trials in this life often reveal those idols. 
So note some of the idolatrous ways of the people of Judah and ask God to reveal your own to you this morning. First, we see them misplacing their trust in financial resources. Verse number one, how has the gold become dim? How has the most fine gold changed? The stones of the sanctuary are poured out in the top, in the corner of the head of every street. Misplacing your trust in financial resources. Nobody here, maybe the exception of Alan, remembers the stock market crash of 1929. Just kidding, brother. But maybe you have memories of, of Black Monday in 1987, or more recently, the financial crisis of 2008. Those were times when people lost a lot of monetary value. There were many who lost confidence because they be, lost hope because they had their confidence in a nest egg, in savings, in stocks that went south. That's the vibe of Lamentations 1. Gold having lost its luster and becoming dull. Gems that were once valued and kept in, in a safe location were now scattered at the head of every street. The city of Jerusalem had been the financial centerpiece for Judah. You can remember back to the Old Testament books and the instruction that God had, had given to uh, his, his people for the construction of the, the Ark of the Covenants and the temple. There was no holding back, right? All of the best, only the best, jewels and gems and gold, it was all there. But now it's corroding. It's scattered in the streets. The poet makes clear to us that trusting in any of those financial resources would be a vain exercise curling their fingers in a strong grasp around any of those precious jewels, all of that gold, it only provided a false security. There is no lasting hope in financial resources. Gold and jewels and gems would not release Judah from captivity, would not prevent the destruction of Jerusalem or prevent famine in the land or rescue them from their current situation. In the darkest times, it became evident there could be no hope found in those financial resources. Jesus tells us that it's impossible to serve God and man and that we are to seek first the kingdom of God. Friends, we have to be careful not to let our bank account define us. We have to be careful not, that, not to believe that we are secure because of what our bottom line is. It's deceptive, isn't it? It's kind of sneaky. It's a powerful force. It sneaks up on us, and, and often it sneaks up on us under the guise, I think especially in Lancaster County, it sneaks up on, on us under the guise of being wise and faithful stewards of the resources that God has given to us. I have to save this amount, this much money for college. I have to save this much money for retirement. I have to save this much money for my health needs. And then we think that we have, if we have this set aside, that we are somehow secure. It brings to us a false sense of security. We're trusting in an account instead of in the Lord. Maybe it comes in the form of, of a new device or a vehicle or a home or whatever, but none of those things are wrong. And in fact, we could, we could argue that some of those things or most of those things are necessary. But we must understand that it's wrong to place our trust in financial resources. Friends, if you're losing sleep based on how well a stock market is doing, you might be trusting in your financial resources instead of your heavenly Father. This is true for us as a congregation as well. God has been kind to provide for our needs and then some at Harvest Bible Church. We cannot place our trust in our financial stability as a congregation. Our hope must be in the Lord and in the Lord alone. Times of trial. Times of trial give you opportunity to identify your misplaced trust. 
And times of trial give you opportunity to renew your trust in the one who is exclusively and completely trustworthy. Don't misplace your trust in financial resources. Secondly, we see them misplacing their trust in, in comfortable circumstances. Look at verse number three. Even the jackals, the sea monsters, draws out of the breast. They give suck to their young ones. The daughter of my people has become cruel like the ostriches in the wilderness. The tongue of the sucking child cleaveth to the roof of his, of his mouth for thirst. The young children ask for bread, and no man gives it to them. They that did feed on delicacies are desolate in the streets. They that were brought up in the scarlet embraced dunghills. The people of Judah had evidently been quite comfortable with the culture. But when tragedy hit, the people turned on one another. They treated their young as no jackal would do. Instead, the people are compared to ostriches, and ostriches known for neglecting their young. The tongues of the nursing infants were swollen, sticking to the roof of their mouths, not because there was a lack of water in the city, but because mothers were ignoring the needs of their own children. Somebody said it this way, the pathetic scenes of young children begging in vain for food seemed to have etched themselves deeply on the mind of the poets who must have witnessed the events described here and in the first two dirges. As further evidence of the breakdown of the culture, we are told that no nobility could not be differentiated from the commoners. Famine was widespread. Everyone was hit. Those who formerly enjoyed the finest delicacies were now dumpster diving for scraps of food. Verse 8 describes the complete exhaustion of the entire city. But can there be a, a glimmer headline, a grimmer piece of, of something to catch, catch our attention than what is recorded for us in verse number 10? The hands of the women have boiled their own children. They that were meat in the destruction of the daughters of my people. When we consider this great turn of events from starving nobility and even cannibalism, we must remember that it was not always like that. So there was a shift somewhere along the line, a tragic turn along the way. Jerusalem had been a great city at one point. A description of the attitude regarding Jerusalem is, is, is found in verse number 12. The kings of the earth... And all the inhabitants of the world would not have believed that the adversary, the enemy, could have been entered into the gates of Jerusalem. The people thought that Jerusalem was impregnable. The people of Jerusalem thought, okay, we're safe. We're comfortable. Everything is, everything is happening. It's going to be okay. Nobody can get to us. The enemy cannot get, get, get to us. They considered themselves to be untouchable by the enemy. It took the Babylonian armies 18 months to force the surrender of Jerusalem. The people of Jerusalem had been swaddled in the security blanket of pride. They found false security in their own physical situations. They'd become comfortable in their circumstances. And then everything turned. Friends, the Bible reminds us to take heed lest we fall. Christian, we are in a dangerous position if we think that we have arrived spiritually. Or we are in a dangerous position if we think that we are in a good place and spiritually, that everything is fine, that we don't have any problems. We are in a dangerous position if we are satisfied with where we are spiritually. Being comfortable can, 
can easily become an idol for us that lures us away from, from full dependence on, upon God. So maybe our comfortable situation and, and, and our trust in that looks like failing to prioritize church gatherings. Or maybe it looks like not giving ourselves to the spiritual disciplines of reading God's word, of praying, of gathering. Maybe it's, it looks like resting in our academic knowledge of God's word versus living out of God's word. Maybe it looks like trusting in the traditions of our spiritual habits regardless of the condition of our hearts. Have you made your comfortable circumstances a false security for yourself? You see, times of trial give you opportunity to, to identify your misplaced trust. And times of trial give you opportunity to renew your trust in the one who is exclusively and completely trustworthy. Placing your trust in financial resources, placing your trust in comfortable circumstances are forms of idolatry. Notice a third idol in this passage, misplacing your trust in other individuals. This might be the, the most significant or the primary evidence of their misplaced hopes. Verse number 13 says, For the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests that have shed the blood of the just in her midst for her. It was the prophets and the priests, the very individuals that should have been proclaiming the covenant relationship of Ju that Judah had with Jehovah, those priests, those prophets, were instead leading the people in heinous sin. The spiritual leaders of the nation did not instruct the people on the law. They didn't rebuke the people about sin. And the people were evidently fully trusting in the spiritual leaders in this task and not holding them accountable. There was a responsibility that the leaders had, and because they did not fulfill that responsibility, Judah was in a difficult, dire situation. The poet clearly states that it was because of their failures, the priests and the prophets' failures, that Judah was facing this time. Leaders were going, going after other gods and all kinds of evil. Their hearts were turned towards that direction. And now they were driven from place to place, as we read earlier, they weren't wanted. Nobody wanted the, the prophets and the priests around them. They were, they were abandoned by the people of Jerusalem. The spiritual leaders who were to teach about purity became untouchable because of their uncleanness. Friends, we have to be careful of what we take in as God's children and who we look to as spiritual leaders. When During the month of October, we took a couple of Sunday evenings in our Sunday evening services and we watched a documentary called American Gospel. It explained how false teachers like Joel Osteen and Benny Hinn preach a false gospel. Friends, we must be aware of what kind of teaching we are absorbing. We must hold to the truth of God's word. Through the, through the work of God's spirit, we must shun the teaching that is contrary to God's word. We cannot blindly put our trust in mere men. When we elect an elder in our family meeting tonight, we must do so with the prayer that our elders remain true to the word of God. And we must hold them to, to proclaiming the truth of the word of God. We begin to believe the lie that people can fix our problems. People aren't the solution to our problems. Now God in his kindness all, often uses people to help his children. God may use a pastor or a good friend or a relative or a teacher or another individual to help you. That's not unusual, but what we have to understand is that it is God who is working through them. We can't put our hope in people. Friends, do your civic duty and vote, 
But there is no president, president of the United States. There is no CEO of your company. There is no Supreme Court balance. There is no person anywhere that can, you can put all of your hope. Your hope must be in Jehovah God alone. You must trust in him alone. So are you trusting in someone other than Jehovah God? Are you expecting someone besides God to be your rock, to be your rescuer? Times of trial, dark times, give you opportunity to identify your own misplaced trust. They also give you opportunity to renew your trust in the one who is exclusively and completely trustworthy. Placing your trust in financial resources, placing your trust in comfortable circumstances, placing your trust in other individuals are all forms of idolatry. Notice one more from this passage. Misplacing your trust in some foolish assumptions. The people of Judah were presuming upon God's kindness. Pastor Josh and I were talking in the office this week about Lamentations 4, and he mentioned that if you just start reading Lamentations, if you just kind of jump into it without knowing the context or the fuller story of God's Word, it sounds so, so severe, so, so harsh. It does. The poet compares the judgment of Sodom and the judgment that came upon Judah. We read that. Sodom's punishment was severe and it was fast. But for Judah, it was severe and it was slow. But out of all the nations of the world, Israel, Judah, should have gotten a pass, right? They had the Abrahamic covenant. They had the Davidic covenant on their side. They were God's chosen people. They had been delivered by God time and time again. Surely God would not rain down more judgment on them. And that was the foolish assumption that the people of Judah were making. Maybe you've seen a stereotypical parent or you've been around someone who's, who's dealing with their children and you hear them say, if, if you do that one more time, if you do that one more time, I'm going to ground you or you're going to have a timeout or you're going to have whatever. Two minutes later, if you do that one more time, Two more, two more minutes. If you do that one more time, the kid does, finally does it one too many times and then faces the penalty for their sin. Verse number 11 says, The Lord hath accomplished his fury. The nation of Israel had warning after warning after warning. The prophets of the 7th and 8th centuries B.C. voiced scores of warnings. You can read through the book of Deuteronomy and you would read many instructions that God gave to his covenant people that they must remain true to him, that they must never worship other gods. He was a jealous God. Judah was presuming on the graciousness of God, not expecting the severe blow of judgment. They were trusting in a foolish assumption instead of trusting in the only one who was fully trustworthy. They were holding tightly to the false security of assuming that somehow they would get a pass from God. I wonder if we do that as Americans. America has been wonderful for almost 250 years. In so many ways, America remains wonderful today, and our prayer is that America will be wonderful in the future. But friends, we cannot place our hope in a nation. We must not assume that because we live in America, that we will somehow get a pass from the chastening hand of Almighty God. 
Harvest Bible Church, God has been kind to us as a congregation. We must not assume that just because we have had 18 years of ministry that we have somehow arrived, that God, that God will give us a pass for coasting, that that would be a foolish, a foolish assumption on our part. Christian, just because you have godly parents and godly grandparents doesn't mean that you are doing well spiritually. It doesn't mean that you have done what you have been called to do by God, that you're following His instructions, that you are living for Him. You cannot assume that your children will follow in the ways of your God just because you are, or your parents did, or your grandparents did. Judah did not get a pass from God's hand of judgment. The judgment that fell on Judah was indeed severe. But then verse 22 tells us that an end would come. The punishment of thine iniquity is accomplished, O daughter of Zion. God would not prolong their days in exile. One day, God would show mercy, and he would send the one that would rescue them. Brothers and sisters, trust God to bring your, exile, your days in exile to an end. Whatever your hardship is on this Lord's day, God will not prolong your exile. He has sent a Savior to us once. This is what we consider at Christmas. And he has promised that he's going to send him again. And he's going to end all of the sorrows that we face in this life. He's going to wipe away every tear. He's going to put an end to all that is wrong. We don't criticize our children for having blankets or stuffed animals or pacifiers that make them feel secure. Primarily, we don't correct them on that because they don't understand yet that full security is not found in those items. But for us, as the children of God, we do know where security is found. We do know that money and the comforts of this world and other people and false assumptions will not be something to put our trust and our hope in. Lament is the language that calls us as exiles to uncurl our fingers from the objects of trust. So what is the object? Who is the object of trust in your life on this Lord's Day? Are you trusting in money? Are you trusting in a friend? Are you trusting in a certain life situation? You've gone to God with this difficult time. You've complained to God. You've asked of God. And now you're called to trust God and to trust God alone. Christian, instead of trusting in these false hopes, trust in the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Trust the one who has no limits to his wealth. Trust the one who is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that you could possibly even imagine. Trust in the one who sticks closer than a brother. Trust in the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Trust in the one who can provide for all of your needs. Trust in the one who does indeed give you new mercies with every new morning. Times of trial, they're hard, aren't they? They're difficult, but they give us opportunity to identify our misplaced trust, and they give us opportunity to renew our trust in the only one who is completely trustworthy. So whatever the hardship is in your life, whatever the darkness is that you face, take the opportunity to identify the ways in which you are trusting in anyone or anything other than Jehovah God. 
Confess that even this morning. Confess that to God. Renew your trust in the one who will not prolong your exile, but instead has freed you through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.